Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jai-Luc Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Tamar. Hello, hello. And Rory Marsh. Hi there. On today's episode, we're discussing Eugene Kotlarenko's Spree, Netflix's Project Power, and Sputnik. Let's start with Spree. So Jesse, hey. uh, I already told him this, but I got these cameras in here set up for everyone's safety. Full disclosure, FYI, I'm totally and completely transparent. Yeah, watch out for him, he's a fucking psycho. But like I was saying, my name is Mario, and uh, you must be Jesse. He has ears. And eyes. And, uh, and three legs. Wouldn't be surprised if he had rabies, too. Wait, hold up, hold up. I know you. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Hey, Mario or Mario or whatever your name is, just grab a water and chill out. Shut the fuck up. Yo, she's a comedian. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, you do the, uh... Hey, everybody look at me. It's all eyes on me. I knew it. Kirk Kunkel, a rideshare driver, thirsty for followers, has figured out a deadly plan to go viral. As his disturbing live streamer is absurdly embraced by the social media hellscape, a comedian emerges as the only hope to stop his rampage. I'll kick off this week's uh, review cycle with, with Spree as I reviewed it for the website, but I'm going to keep this relatively short and hopefully sweet. As um, The more I think about Spree, the, the more, I don't want to say I detest it, but the more I become I, I become really, really, really cold towards it, let's say. Um, there is a lot to like here. I think I think Joe Carey's performance is, is, is really good in, in what is essentially a breakout leading role. And... Um, to say that out of the two sort of relatively elder statesmen over um, in Stranger Things alumni, uh, himself and Natalie Dyer have sort of come out the gates rather slow, but I think the two projects they've picked are interesting character studies on um, quite d- different um, ideologies and mindsets that are uh, two di- very different genres. So uh, f- regarding Joe Carey's performance, I, I, I don't really have any, any issues um, to put forward. I also... I've, this is why I struggle with it because on one hand I really like the uh, the found footage aesthetic. I think it's a in- really interesting sort of idea to go towards, especially the context of the film where it looks at social media, it looks at influencers and and stuff like that. It looks at sort of mental health, which I'm sure we'll touch on um, a little bit later in this discussion. But I think overall, even though that it's incredibly jarring to sort of witness throughout, and it does sort of break the fourth wall multiple times in this sort of tongue in cheek meta sensibility it just thrust you in the shit in this film in a way that it feels almost inescapable and i think it's an interesting way for sort of eugene uh, kotlarenko to put forward as in you know you're on the phone you, you see something horrific on, on on the live stream or on facebook or a plentitude of, of social medias now and often than not you find it more difficult to sort of pluck yourself away from it and, and come away from it rather than be sucked into it so understandably contextually it works that being said, I think this is a this is a film that takes a subject matter and and perhaps puts a quite light mentality and sent- sentimentality forward, where I think that this is a theme that's that's sort of raging on now. I mean, fifteen, maybe twenty years ago, even five years ago, that there's this constant discussion on whether or not video games are harmful. Um, to, to children and, and the likes of, of, of people. And I think what's happening now is that in this social media age, it's going to be the same sort of conversations. And I think there's something interesting for film to analyse there, um, especially with sort of nuance and subtlety and, and a character study. And I feel like 
this this thinks it wants to be something like that, but it doubled down on the horror a little bit too much for me. I really like the horror. I think it's interesting. Um, it is it is very very sort of B movie like horrifying moments. Don't get me wrong, and and some of them are, are, are sort of really eye catching and, and and grim to witness. But overall, it it's just a film that I feel want wants to be um, this really heightened, elevated take on. Uh, the social social media discourse and how it can um, rot people's brains, but overall, it's just it just falls flat with sort of how it convicts on that. Like I said, I think Joe Carey's performance is really dynamic. It's really interesting. Um, the way they shoot this film also elevates the material. It looks really good and at times. Again, and um, it, it is very jarring, but it, I think it sort of gets away from that gimmick um, ideal by having sort of a fluidity to it, having momentum. And it doesn't come off redundant, but on, on, like again, overall, I think this is a film that really undercuts its themes to a degree where it's actually a really missed opportunity to touch on something that that's uh, greater than the film itself. Although it's clear from the outset and, and beyond that this is a horror film first and foremost, and to that degree, I think it probably it achieves on what, what it wants to do. So um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you when you talk about Joe Carey's performance. I think that's definitely the best part of the film he's kind of this psychotic yet awkward kind of nerdy character who's just obsessed with becoming this like influencer figure uh, i put on the record a lot of times before that i despise influencer culture i think it's pretty much corrupting the youth of today and just making them do and irritating horrible things it creates horrible personalities in a really toxic internet environment which um is getting kind of worse and worse and that's why trump's banning things like tiktok in america and I just think it's a horrible kind of, I'm not going to say movement because that'd be giving it too much credit, but whatever it is, I think it's pretty, pretty grim stuff. And I think this does satirize it fairly well in taking it to its biggest extremes. We were talking the other day about how, um, you know, if something like this happened and we saw someone get run over by a guy in an Uber, what would happen? And it was my opinion that in this day and age, people would get out their phones and film it sooner than calling the police. And I think Spree kind of tries to comment on the fact that we're slowly kind of devolving into that kind of culture, but I don't think it's sharp enough or nasty enough to really drive that home. The found footage aesthetic is interesting and pretty well executed here. I normally find found footage as a genre kind of pretty, pretty uh, gimmicky in general, just because... I'm not going to say it's due to the low budget factors. Obviously, there are good low budget films made for fan footage, you know, Blair Witch Project, things like that. But they can come off as cheap or careless or whatever. Uh, this one doesn't really lie in that camp. I think they find creative ways that are linked in sensibly with the story to expand on this style of filmmaking. Like there are multiple camera angles and, you know, different points of view. And it's all kind of very well meshed into the whole narrative uh, due to the fact that it's you know, on this influencers or this wannabe influencers live stream. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I was saying it's kind of more resemblant of a exploitation film for the, for the 21st century, you know, exploiting these internet trends and the kind of people that it's creating and taking that, you know, into a pretty nasty B movie territory. But as I said, I don't think it's quite angry enough. Um, and we were talking about this the other day and I do want to bring it back up again about the characters in this and how it's, arguably an intentional move from the filmmakers and the writers that there aren't any morally good characters in this film. 
I think that's maybe one of the more interesting discussions you can have around this, but I'll just throw that out there and see what you guys think. But um, in general, I think it's got some interesting ideas, good lead performance, uh, found footage has done pretty well, but there's not much substance here and rewatchability, I can't really see that happening. And the other thing I'm slightly worried about is that we might get a, an American psycho effect here, as in people will watch this and think, oh, this is a really cool movie. And that'll be in the zeitgeist is this cool, awesome movie that's shared around college dorms and stuff. And that just is completely adverse to what I think the film's trying to say. But then again, it doesn't make itself clear enough to exaggerate that. So despite agreeing with both of you, I'm actually much more positive, I think, than either of you. I really like the found footage aesthetic, as you've both mentioned. I think it is really clever with its editing and how it actually gets its shots. Yes, it's a little contrived by the end. You have to have some characters live streaming stuff. That, like Clearly, if you're in that situation, you wouldn't be filming. So, I mean, that gets a little contrived, but overall it really like drew me into the movie and really connected with me. I thought it was the very genuine exploration of the desperation of being on social media, whether you're a content creator or just casually posting on Instagram, right? Like it's impossible, even if you don't really care about the numbers, it's impossible not to see others like making a career out of this form of artistic expression, uh, finding this huge following and community. And it can be, there's a truly, like desperation when you just want to find success you want to find a community community you want to find an impact you know if you want to create a career out of it you know like there's that genuine desperation that i think is really beautifully captured in kurt but it was in our discussion we had earlier about the actual message this film has that i started to turn on it quite a bit we made the comparison to joker a bit i feel very similar between the two movies where there are an interesting like underlying ideas but the film itself from a screenplay perspective is just not crafted in the slightest to actually have that conversation having the characters because originally i was thinking i was defending the film as a decent exploration of like oh social media is toxic everyone on it whether you're a creator or viewer it's all toxic but then you have everyone that he picks up in the uber or you know spree basically uber they're all horrible people and the conversation that just naturally is there even if it wasn't revolutionary it's lost in the shuffle and it just becomes a very messy film i do appreciate compared to joker which took its story and tried to play it as a serious drama um you know one of the very minor issues within that film um, but still an issue nonetheless like it tries to play it just dead serious and it overall fails this tries to have a really fun energy of camp and entertainment and humor and charisma i think that works rather well this is an entertaining film both of you or uh, roy you mentioned that you couldn't really see yourself re-watching the movie i easily could see myself throwing this movie on with friends and watching it again i think the horror is fun joe Keery is just fucking phenomenal with how charismatic and over the top his performance is um, but it's once you start to really analyze the themes of the film that I think the screenplay just becomes a mess and it just loses the impact it clearly wants to have. Just to add on to, to what Carson you, you just said there even though I, I don't think I particularly like the film as much as you did or in essence appreciate the film as much as you do I think it, even I can still say that I see shades of what you're speaking about within my viewing. I still see that the shades of what um, the director and what the theme of the film is trying to say. I think where I, I think the film becomes in actual fact problematic is that there's that, just that lack of investigation to that descent. That there is sort of this cold opening where we see Kurt trying to get these likes and all of a sudden the film switches of him to tell the audience that he has a plan. I would have 
rather have seen those countless hours in between that decision and beforehand as a as a descent into this sort of madness let's say and the film in my opinion while cutting that out does a massive disservice to to, to the to the theme itself but also the actual discussion of what it wants to go for because after that moment on until sort of the ending which i will touch upon um like i said after this point hopefully is that it never actually wants to, to to talk about why or how Kurt goes the way he does. Clearly, it, it, it's pushed by a lack thereof of, of, of a, a lack thereof um, audience online. But even then, there, there there seems to be a lot more to that rather than just a simple uh, decision of him to, him to go down this road. But uh, again. This is a feature full of conversation on mental illness, a possible conversation and surrounding like the social media. And, I, and like I said, yes, I think the film does touch upon the depths. Um, Kurt will go. Um, but I just think it feels excessively hollow, shallow. And I think the film finds that aspect uninteresting in digging deeper than surface level theory, which is such a shame because we, we, we all, we're all here speaking of, of how highly we, we, we put forward of Joe Kerry and he's quite clearly capable of, of taking this character that extra um, layer. I just think the director and the, uh, I'm not too sure if he's a writer or a director here, but it just feels that like there's just not a conscious decision to, 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 to really dive deeper. And then again, I keep on repeating it, but that's my biggest issue. There's a, we're living now in the in this 21st century of social media where we are seeing crimes like this committed. Granted, not to this degree, but you know, you, you go on Facebook and you or, or Twitter or, or Instagram and you go down just this rabbit hole of of, of 10 seconds um, bite-sized media that stays with you for for, for hours and and, year, and years to come. So there's definitely material here here to sort of unpack it and and really divulge upon, but. I'm just again. I'm, I'm just left to, to watch this shallow piece of work that has all of the cards dealt, and 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 and, and I, there's never been a more explicit capacitor uh, than this. And Spree instead just wavers its time in highlighting spill blood and gore without really questioning the uh, the why. I, I try my, my my I try my hardest to sort of appreciate the the time and effort put into this, and I think the filmmaking wise, I think this is more positive. But again. If you're going to touch on these themes, I think they're very difficult themes not to undercook. And I think you have to really go 110% into, into, into investigating them. And I think the topic of mental illness and horror has never been more apparent. And you, we have, you know, the, the straight-laced horror relic and split where it will discuss mental illness wrapped around and intertwined with uh, convention and, and, and mental health here is probably not the way to do it but it's understandable like as rory said this is quite clear an exploitation it's difficult to sort of assess this and 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 break it to pieces because ultimately the the, the, the unborn goal for eugene kotlarenko is to make a horror film and i don't I, I i wouldn't i would never disagree with anyone who says that he does succeed there my issue is that i think we're, we're seeing a more elevated fashion of horror now and i just don't think this is on that level in terms of really having a questionable interesting and engaging conversation on that topic just to come back to that quickly i i'm expanding on what you're saying there i think the main issue here is maybe that the filmmakers are uh, prizing enjoyment over message in this i think it's a film 
like as we were saying, you know, it is an exploitation film, and the, and the main, well, one of the main points of an exploitation film is to be enjoyable. But the thing about normal exploitation films, if you look at something like Assassination Nation, is the closest thing I can think to this. Which, by the way, is a fantastic film if you haven't seen it. But Assassination Nation looks at data protection, packages it into an enjoyable thing, but also has a lot to say. Meanwhile, it's commentary mixed with action and drama, and it's all very well intertwined. But what happens here is the filmmakers prize. I mean, I, it's it's hard to describe because a lot of media that we watch is circles around you know homicide and things like that, and that's essentially sometimes aspects of films that people enjoy watching. And I think here the filmmakers try and do the same and make this murderous spree enjoyable, make it a fast-paced kind of ride, but they don't touch on as Jack said, the reason why. And it's trying to be a satire of modern culture, but to be a satire, the filmmakers have to show they understand what exactly they're satirizing. Whereas here, I think they've come up with an interesting idea inspired by what's going on in the world right now and just powered through and making an enjoyable film rather than something that actually has something to say. It has the facade of being a social commentary, but I don't think it actually is that. 110% Rory, I couldn't agree with that that last um comment you made more than any fiber in my being i think it's interesting they bring up assassination nation because um i think i'm one of the relatively few people who, who was able to see that in a cinema um i had absolutely no expectation really i didn't actually know what it was about i just i had an amc um a list and i had my third film and i thought let's just go watch it and i watched it in a very small town in montana and i, I was sort of slightly worried what it was going to be about but that is a film i think that expertly looks at issues within society and and deconstructs it in, mo- in multiple levers and, and multifaceted um, multifaceted layers uh, to get to a sort of an overall point but i think it also in that same breath subverts expectation of its genre and makes it into this action thriller of sorts which it, reading it on paper is bizarre but it's so it's so executed it's executed so well in, to that degree i, I think I had a really big hot take on that film when it when it came out. I think it's, I think, not to stray away too far from the point, but we look at society and we look, we look at what the social norm is, and, and we see the likes of revenge porn, uh, and we see the likes of doxing, and we, like again, social media now has become um, such a, a social norm uh, that those things are going to take precedent far more than, than we we probably really think that they do now. And I think that film so expertly looks at that as a domestic terrorism case. And I think it's so interesting to look at it at that point of view, because ultimately these crimes, is what, that is what it's going to be condensed to. Doxing a person's life on the internet, spilling all of their secrets, financially and socially, I think it's an issue that this, this world is not yet ready to face. And we see it, you know, with, with stuff like... Um, leaks and the iCloud and stuff like that with major celebrities we're seeing at the moment when, when, when you see banks being hacked and you're looking at they're, they're releasing stuff like you know court cases with the Weinstein case and we're seeing a lot more now with with um, you know with the presidency and stuff like that so it's just there's definitely what I'm trying to say is that there's you can have new ones but these are not b-movie aesthetics anymore these are not b-movie themes this shit now is actually happening and I think that any director can come into this now and you don't have to exploit it through an exploitation um, 
genre piece or a B move. I think you can still have a great nuance with this now. So more so, I'm sort of the way the way I'm going to settle on this now, and I think I've, I've come to terms with my opinions that I think for what Spree is, I think it does a relatively good job of what, what it wants to do. And I think further than that, I just think that if there's another film that wants to take this theme and wants to take this story and elevate it to, to a, a, a far more poignant, compelling um, and restrained manner, I think that would make for a far greater film. But nonetheless, I think for the most part, what Eugene Kotlarenko has done with this film Spree is that he's made a film that he, what he wanted to make, which is horror first and social commentary second. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I just think in my opinion, I would have preferred the latter as the former and vice versa. So it is a sh- it's two sides of a coin. On one hand, I'm I'm I have no problem with Spree for what it is. Yet on the second, I just I'm sort of really wanting just a little bit more. But it is what it is. Um, um, it'll be interesting to see what where Kotlarenko goes from here. We've seen from the past directors who have used this aesthetic have done it once, and then gone back into it and reused it again. Again, I mean, we we spoke a bit about off air about you know weirdly enough something like American Animals where the director like had made that film and people going into that for the first time are going to be in awe and like wow this is such an interesting way of how to depict narrative uh, through um, uh, narration with the actual uh, people themselves who commit these crimes and also have the characters and then you have four different people's perception on that and then you see the film he made beforehand which is a lot more restrained but it uses that technique to a far more chilling degree so you can elevate it and you could use it on different sort of genres but I just don't think that the aesthetic in Spree could work anywhere else. And I think if if Kotlarenko goes down this road, there's only one way he can go is to make Hardcore Henry Vol- version two. And I don't know, I think that that sort of video game aesthetic's done and, 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 one, and one and done, to be honest. So where he goes from here will be very interesting. If he, st- if he changes in the realm of horror, um, I'll still be, I'll still listen uh, and I'll, I'll still be engaged to see what he does. But if he makes another horror like this, I think it could be interesting. But hopefully it's just a more full-fledged horror, not anything that takes on too much uh, poignant social commentary, in my opinion. Moving on from a film uh, about a killing spree to a film that almost killed me, let's move on next to Project Power. Power, power, speak a little louder. If there was a pill, I'm you better than money. I'm coming at the power. They could give you five minutes. Spill it so they get it. I'm embedded with the power. The pure power. I'm embedded with the power. Would you take it? An ex-soldier, a teen and a cop collide in New Orleans as they hunt for the source behind a dangerous new pill that grants users temporary superpowers. Rory, uh, you reviewed this for the site. Let's uh, let's see your thoughts on this first. Uh, This is such a weird movie, I think. And I think, even though I wasn't a big fan of it, I'm probably the most positive here out of all three of us, which isn't great, but you know. So I talked a lot about this review and I'm kind of going to be reiterating what I say in the review, but there's so much weird stuff to comment on here. Um, I talk about how Netflix is trying to carry on this string of like dark, gritty superhero movies. I feel like Marvel have led the way. 
and then DC are trying to follow them and then Amazon followed them and DC came back with something like Doom Patrol and now Netflix have done The Old Guard and Umbrella Academy and this, Project Power. So I think they're trying to follow in footsteps that, I mean, you know, these footsteps are like ditches now. People have walked in it so many times. It's, I mean, that's an awful analogy, but, you know, <laughs> uh, like it's such such well-trodden ground that it's you slightly wonder why they even bother but then again the money is there and the audience is there so why not carry on making the same average films every time um that i mentioned earlier amazon so if you haven't seen it the boys is a series that came out like two years ago pretty much took the streaming world by storm for you know a couple of weeks maybe even months and rightfully so because it's utterly fantastic but um the more I watched Project Power, the more I thought, right, a drug that activates superpowers in bad people, it's basically Project Power is retreading the same ground narratively that the boys did, which would be fine, except that it does nothing new with it whatsoever and is even more surface level than the boys was, which was admittedly a, develop, a, a kind of well-developed story. And granted, they do have the luxury of making that series. But I think they couldn't have made this 10 minutes longer than it was. I thought it was spread so thin. And the material was granted, like granted, pretty weak. That you know, this is this is kind of the kind of meager offering that we've got. Um, and carry on. This is just very derivative. Uh, Jamie Fox. I was watching this and I was thinking about another thing. Uh, so Jamie Fox has been come on and off the radar recently. I mean, obviously he did Django Unchained how many years ago, and I still think that's his standout role. And I think he's pretty awesome here, to be honest. Like he kind of comes in and is charismatic and good in action sequences and looks cool and you know plays the part that he plays in most things but I was watching it and I thought an ex-cop whose child gets kidnapped whose main motivation is to you know fight the system and get them back through doing renegade actions that's the same plot as a film called Sleepless which he did about four years ago except the the only difference is that he's a soldier in this and he's a cop in that that's that's where it that's where the you know differences end so if you're talking about derivative uh, nature of this film that's that's what you've got there but yeah I just thought it it looks good the cinematography's pretty solid uh the vi visual effects are pretty pretty great throughout I thought generally better than a lot of the kind of some of some of even the Marvel stuff I've seen I feel like Marvel can sometimes slip into the realm of unreality which I know is very different you know when you're like Machine Gun Kelly on fire and Project Power and you're staging a fight between an alien army and you know all the avengers in endgame there is obviously going to be differences there but i thought the vfx were generally pretty good and sell it quite well and it's a far better looking film than the kind of it's it's a great looking film that has a very flimsy narrative characters that aren't developed at all um yeah there's not really much else to say I and mean, it's just your cookie cutter superhero film that copies everyone else and that's all there really is. I mean, if you like that kind of thing, and some people might, and there are some cool moments here. Uh, there are some nice visual tableaus, like Joseph Gordon never getting shot in the head, and then it kind of, the bullet is kind of like absorbed and flattens and rebounds. That's cool. I mean, it looks, there are some, <laughs> you know, I feel like just a kid, and you're watching a film, and you go, oh yeah, that's cool. And then you forget about it. Joseph Gordon Levitt is the highlight of this film, I will say. Very weird uh, decision for him to do this after working with, we were talking earlier, Jack, about how, you know, he was working with Oliver Stone and, Steven Spielberg and everyone like that and Robert Zemeckis and now he's doing Project Power and a kind of slightly racist terrorist film uh, in 7500 which we reviewed it a while ago but um yeah I mean if you've watched the trailer you know what this is going to be and if you think the trailer promises something better than your average superhero film then I think you're wrong but I mean if this is up your street then maybe it is I don't know
Yeah, Rory, you're definitely the most positive. I mean, I'm not going to speak for Jack. Definitely more positive than I am on this film. I hated this movie with like a passion. It really disappointed me because it's from the same directors as Nerve, a film I am gen like generally more positive on than most people. I think going back to the conversation of ambition and promise, that's a film with a decent amount of bulk. Um, this movie's horrible. The plot is one of the most boring plots maybe I've seen in a while simply because it's so convoluted, it's so complicated, it's so badly handled as far as setting up characters and following through with moments. It felt similar to Bright in a lot of ways, weirdly, the Netflix film Bright, where it had a decent visual design. Like I think there are plenty of visuals that look cool in it, but the plot is so, even though there's like clearly plot elements that are inspired on paper, in practicality, like in practice, they're just horrible. Um, it's just so, so boring and so, so hard to focus and just pay attention. And the characters are boring. They set up interesting elements and the characters could have been a ton of fun, like with the boys. Um, it's just, it does not accomplish any of those goals. And the action itself, yes, the visual effects are pretty decent throughout. The action reminded me a lot of the old guard when it came to fight choreography where it just was shot and handled so, so badly, where you couldn't tell what the hell was going on at any moment. Um, I think this film is near incompetent in a lot of ways. On paper, like on a bullet list, there's some interesting ideas and there's some good, you know, oh, that could be a cool moment. This could be a cool visual. Um, I found that it paid off. It didn't pay off in a single one properly. Um, this was legitimately a struggle to get through. And I think one of the worst films I've reviewed for Clappercast. Maybe not as bad as The Kissing Booth 2, um, but it's definitely up there. It's definitely up there for me. If, any, if anyone thinks that Carson went a little bit too hard on that, I'm quite glad you went before me because I, I, I'm honestly seething at how much I fucking hated this film. Um, I, again, I, I've, I've seen Nerve. And, and the, the weird thing, I mean, you brought up two examples there, Bright and Nerve, which I think I'm going to touch on a, um, a little bit, but I think you, you perfectly summed it up. I could tell this was directed by the same people who made that film without even knowing their names were attached. The first 10 minutes I was watching it and thinking, this reminds me of Nerve. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not keen on, on, the, on the, whole, the whole idea. Granted, I think Nerve in its own right, I, 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 I may, I'll have a review up there somewhere. I don't think I'd give it a, real, a great score, but it's not... not at the same ballpark as this. Um, I, don't, I Seriously, and I'm going to be really honest here, I don't know where to begin with this because I, I, I'm trying not to get um, worked up to the point where I'm going to get angry. Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to try and be professional with this and, and articulate my thoughts. Um, I think the visual style here, I mean, you touched on it, Carson, and I know you did as well, Rora. I think it's atrocious here, and I think it's, it's, it's horrific beyond belief. The constant use of swirling Dutch angles is 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 a point beyond oblivion. I mean, they never they never elicit mood, and it's just a dick swinging shouting contest. Like, look at me, look at me, I can use a camera. And beyond, before long, I'm just sat there like I understand that you've got an aesthetic. I understand what you're trying to do. You're probably using like a couple of hundred thousand um, dollar camera equipment. I, I get it. Like, just show me actual something with substance. Because it's just style over style over style, and it's boring, it's redundant. And, and uh, seriously, the first 15 minutes, I was just thinking, it just can't get worse. And before long, it did. Because there's certain action set pieces here that are incredibly hard to distinguish what is going on. And while I appreciate 
the, the contextual approach in quotes to like craft tension and atmosphere. There's one where we're in like this sort of like like Hulk Avengers uh, assemble esque um, vat where the, there's an experiment of some kind. Again, throw narrative and plot out the window because nobody's going to give a shit about what this film's about. Because ultimately, if you're going to start a film with an with and also Rodrigo Santaro, I believe that's his name looks like the spitting image of Ethan Hawke's cousin who's been trapped in a basement for about six years. And then you've got Machine Gun Kelly, and I'm just like, well, what? Like, we're on, a, we're on an airfield, Machine Gun Kelly's there, and I'm like, what, what, what would, what's going on? Seriously, like, if you, you have to have an ambition to, 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 to open a film of this magnitude, because it's like Roy said, there's sort of this recurring theme now with Netflix where they, they need to do this sort of aesthetic where they need to bring in these huge, uh, like the old guard, and, 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 and I think we, we mentioned it um, before, I can't remember the name, but there's like this sort of this ideology where we have to just throw the biggest superhero thing, like obviously the boys, that's what I was trying to mention. And you, but you've got to have an identity and substance and an ambition here, there's just nothing. Um, again, going back to the, to the, the set pieces, there's scenes that are quite clearly crafted to heighten and elevate character, but the film at that point doesn't sit down and doesn't give a shit about who may, who may die or may, who may survive. So we're in this vat, we're watching this woman, and it's, it, don't wrong, it's actually quite hard. It, again, I'm not going to give this any nuance, but it's actually quite hard to watch because you've seen someone perish in front of your eyes, but you can't see a fucking thing of what happens. And beyond that, why do I care what happens to her? I don't know who she is. I don't know she had a name. And then, and then that, that's just one thing. And these, these, I'm going to go into sort of this petty argument here. And I, 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 we'll just talk about influencers, so it set me up big style. But having one nice stepbrother is enough in these films. There was one in Nerve, and he was in there for 12 seconds, and that was fine. But why does this film have to have two? And, and, and we, we mentioned it before. Everyone says Casey Neistat, yeah, his brother's in this as well. And I was like, what? And he plays one of like the, the, these a secret agents. I mean, and as derivative as you can imagine, that's what it is. To implement them in such a half-baked fashion without, without any character, I don't know anyone's name in this. I, I found out that Casey Neistat's character is called Moto. What? What? Ad adding in these influences just takes away from the intimacy and immersion that they try to do. And, and to be honest, it underwhelms and it just makes me, it's just laughable. But, but going on from pettiness, let, let's, start, let's talk a little bit more, you know, about the weight of the film and let's get a bit more articulated. I think it takes a while to really get into this with the first half, like quite dull and uninteresting. I just think it was boring. Um, again, we mentioned Bright. I think the idea of Bright is quite refreshing. I think it's an interesting subverted take to look at a problem within society and, 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 and throw in sort of some science fiction element to, 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 to make something more or less unique in a saturated market. I get that. I understand that. I appreciate the effort. And here, again, Carson, you mentioned ambition and, and, and promise. I'm just, it's just lacking. It's just lacking in that department for me quite, quite considerably. I mean, um, it's quite dull and, and uninteresting. It's only when the two parallel story acts come together with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Jamie Foxx, where it, it sort of became... Um, manageable for me, where I, could, I found a, a remote possibility of interest. Um, not due to be exciting or entertaining, but purely, I thought I just wanted to have speculation to see where it would go. I just felt like I, I had to commit to see it to the end, which is actually really sad, because I'm not a person who would switch this off. I've seen so much shit in my life 
regarding film where I've, I've pushed myself through and sometimes you can get that fi- that final scene where it does elevate the material but here there was just nothing from that midpoint where two characters intersect where I just found that I was going to have something worthy of watching um I think the film does not have one central antagonist at all it has about eight and they're all underwritten and uninteresting like if you can't formulate one villain why does the filmmakers why do the filmmakers feel that nine of them are going to suffice and none of them do and again I, i've mentioned about rodrigo santoro he just looks like ethan hawk like i said like just hire ethan hawk why why again so i suppose it's netflix and maybe they don't have the budget to hire ethan hawk and on this ensemble cast and i think for for what rodrigo santoro does does relatively well but to me if you're quite clearly trying to go for an imitation don't do it at all. If you can't get your, your, your first choice, go back to the drawing board and just reimagine something else. Because for me, I just couldn't get that out of my mind. Um, again, the, the, this constant use of music video aesthetic that we're seeing all the time in Netflix now, there's not a film where I'm not seeing this, this motif implemented. And it, each time, like, it's never better. There's never an improvement upon it. Stop doing it because ultimately it's like this old guard thing. Oh wow, that's a contemporary pop song. Charlize Theron kicks someone. Wow, there's another contemporary theme song. Charlize Theron kicks someone, and it's just the same shit here. And and again, there's like this contextual conversation on on this young character uh, played by um, what's her name now? Uh, oh, I forgot her name. I forgot her name. This this young kid, and she's she wants to be a rapper. And um, there was one moment in this film, and it was the most like. It just didn't feel like it felt, it didn't feel like it fitted the overall film itself. But it was just this really tiny pocket where I was just, it was just intimate, where she was rapping for Jamie Foxx at the veterinarian clinic. And I was sat there and I was like, I wasn't like, let's say I wasn't overwhelmed by it, but I was just thinking that's actually a really nice, small, intimate and quite engaging little uh, dialogue we've had there. And then before long, I just thought, I drifted, why the fuck is that there? Like, like, if anything, like, isn't that just like a generalization, like, a, like a morbid stereotype of, uh, I just like, give, give the character purpose, like, uh, the, it, it, within the film, and I'm, I'm ranting here, so I'm going to apologize, but within the film, she comes from, from a background where it's quite clear that money is important, and, and um, a mother's also sick, never, the film never wants to touch upon that, and it sort of makes like this mockery of it, in, in, in certain cases where I felt like, hmm, that's perhaps not what you should have gone for. Again, that's me just being ultra PC, perhaps, if anyone wants to take that up on there. But it was just that there's a lot of ambition here. And then in the same take, like, there's just none. And it's this sort of oxymoronic relationship where there's, there could have been something really interesting to do about the projects in New Orleans. It, it was, there could have been something interesting to talk about, or quote unquote, what, what, what life um, is in, in the ghetto, per se. And then we follow, like, uh, Joseph Gone Levitt, and I'm like, I want to follow. I want to follow the young girl who has this this interest in rap. How she can vocalize her issues, economical, social pressures of how her life is difficult. And there's a, a really interesting scene with a with a high school teacher. And I was just thinking, right, what's the reason behind rap? What what's the reason why she wants to become a rapper? Is it because she wants to make money? Is it a talent? And then there's a conversation on what is talent. And I'm just beyond before long. I'm just lost in the whole ideology of what the actual fuck is going on but 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 moving on from from that um 
just I need to sum this up because I'm actually going to have an aneurysm. But this film is so distressing for me. It's, it's beyond belief. Like I'm so I'm so annoyed, and I'm not annoyed that this it's it's it, like a, like spree. There's ambition there. There's like a topic to to have it on. This just feels like just the most tumbler tumbler Twitter esque where people like have thrown out these hot takes and like yeah let's make a film like that and then let's add that in and then let's add this in. I'm just like. This is quite clearly Netflix in a board meeting going, yeah, let's just throw Jamie Foxx in this. Let's just throw this in. Let's have that theme. Yeah, let's, let's throw it in, in New Orleans. Let's have a, a young black girl who, who, ha- who doesn't know what she wants to do with her life, who has to take care of her mother at the age of, what, 14. Let's just throw that in without any depth. And I'm just there, like, I think it's a, just a disservice to everybody who's involved. But I think it's, it's, it's zero narrative and performances that just about save this from being a disaster. And uh, the, the actress in question, her name is Demi- uh, Dominique Fishback. She is the highlight here. She is one to watch most definitely. Um, she, is, she is the character, the young black girl who, who, who wants to be a rapper. Again, the depth's not here for her to sort of articulate, um, not her, but the, the narrative's not here to articulate what that character is going through. And I think it's like, again, a disservice to overall performance, but undoubtedly she's the, the highlight. But anything else, I'm just, I'm really, really struggling not to lose the plot with this film. It's just the, it's a quintessential barbaric nature of Netflix here. And if this is where <laughs> Blockbuster Entertainment is going, I need to check out while, while I still have the chance. See, I think you nailed it perfectly. I think one of the biggest issues with the film is just like the gritty, dark tone that it tries to handle. Because I think especially with the main character, the girl, like it's very clear that there could have been two sides that could have taken two like distinct directions. Either they could have made it a bit more entertaining and can't, not necessarily campy, but like to where like she's just this badass like rapping young girl who's in the superhero movie and like it's very fun and you know even if it's not necessarily the most well crafted when it comes to quality like it's just an entertaining film or you could have had like a blind spotting moment where she's rapping and it's this really empower like powerful um, like realistic grounded take on what these characters are going through set in a superhero setting and instead it just takes this gritty so bore so boring so dull just taking absolutely no risks, just going through the motions, trying to be this gritty superhero film that just does absolutely nothing to stand out. It does nothing to say anything, really. It's just, it's so disappointing to see what this film could have been. Because I agree, her performance is fantastic. And like I said, on paper, there are so many bullet points. Like, just the idea of this pill will grant people superpowers for five minutes. Like, there's a million things you could do with that. And this film just fails to do anything. Um, I'll try and get to some of your points. Uh, I, I don't want to sit here and defend it because even though I wasn't a huge fan of this film, I find like, because I'm the most positive one, I've got to defend it. But I, I, I don't really feel any obligations towards it because let's be honest, it's, it's not something special, is it? Um, action, Carson, I believe with you uh, on this. I think I wrote in my review and it frustrates me to no end when I watch an action movie in 2020 and it's shot like this. I mean... Guys, the, the born was it the born supremacy that pioneered this kind of quick cut acting stuff? I mean, what was that like? Fifteen years ago, people have got to get to grips with how to shoot action, and that's not the way. Paul Greengrass, it worked for him, great. That was two films. Stop now. We need to move on. I mean, even Netflix made a film called Extraction, which was what like at the start of quarantine, it's like six months ago. So what? I'm assuming this in Project Power and production at the same time. And I know Extraction was directed by a stuntman, Sam Hargreaves, and it's really, really well done there. But that's the kind of action sequences that 
we expect in this day and age? Is that too much to ask? I mean, we're in a world where, you know, Gareth Evans is tearing it up with the raid in Gangs of London. And, you know, we get things like Extraction and John Wick. You know, Chad Stahelski's on fine form at the moment. You can't put subpar action in an action film and expect people to review it well, because if the prime draw to your film is action and the action is bad, what, what, what do you expect people are supposed to get out of this? I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, held up by a great story and really deep characters. So I'm not really sure what you think is going to happen. Um, there's no weight to these sequences at all. These are people with superpowers. There's a scene at the start when Machine Gun Kelly kind of flame on. It's like he's from fucking Fantastic Four. Uh, and it's, there's just no weight to it whatsoever. It's really good looking. It looks great. The VFX are awesome. Uh, I wasn't really paying attention to the score, but, you know, whatever. It's probably not very good. Um, but there's no weight to it at all. If you want to find out how to make action scenes with weight in them, there are three options Netflix have got here. You can look at Extraction, which you made probably about the same time as this, which is a great example of that. You can look at The Boys, which is what you're directly stealing from for this film and find out how to do action in that. Or you can look at, and this is the weekly, uh, well, whenever I'm on, I like to mention S. Craig Zyler. Uh, you can look at Brawl in Silver 99 and find out how to do action from him because he knows what he's doing. But the people who are making this clearly don't know how to shoot action. So get someone else in. This is a studio who make films with great action. And so I don't understand how they mess up so badly. But yeah, if you're making an action film and the action's bad, don't even bother because no one's going to care. Um, Jack, you mentioned this kind of testing tank scene where we kind of see a woman who's in a, like a testing tank for this drug and she slowly like succumbs to these powers. Um, I mentioned that in my review as one of the more interesting moments. Uh, it's, it's, it is during an action scene, but I suppose in this case, the action isn't important. It's more an example of how this drug affects people. And I thought it was quite, it was brief, but quite effective in establishing how dangerous this drug is. And I'll get onto the antagonists in a minute, but what I kind of came to understand, and I don't think this is intentional, but the, the antagonist of the film is the kind of focal drug itself rather than a particular person. So I think it does a really job, a really good job of establishing how dangerous it is. And you see this, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but you know, obviously it would mention that she dies, but you see this woman kind of freeze up and her body parts like fall off and get stuck to the walls and her fingers rip off and stuff. And it's really kind of the only kind of gruesome moment we see in the film, even though this is R rated, which also is another thing I don't really understand. If you're giving a film an R rating, you might as well just go all out on it. But you know, that's just me being a weird guy who likes gory movies. Um, but I thought that was an effective scene and there is an action sequence that takes place outside it, which, you know, obviously isn't good, but it's not the focal point. Um, and that's also the moment where Casey Neistat's character gets killed. I mean, he's in it for like a minute of screen time and he gets killed like off screen. I don't really know why they bothered having him because it's just distracting. I mean, I'm not a fan, but I know who he is and it's just weird having him in there. Um, so moving on to this antagonist problem. I found it really, that, that's another really strange thing why I think this is such a weird movie. This is the first time I've seen Rod Rodrigo Santoro since he was in Love Actually. So, I mean, this is an interesting thing to see him in. I didn't really know he was still acting, but there we go. Uh, it, it does have an antagonist problem. As I said, the antagonist seems to be this pill itself. But I don't think that's the filmmakers saying before they film this, oh, the pill is the antagonist and people need to understand that. They do have like two or three antagonists in this. There's Rodrigo Santoro and there's kind of like a bigger boss at the end. There's always a bigger fish kind of thing. And the, the kind of main antagonist, this woman who we meet at the end, 
she maybe has like three lines of dialogue and is not mentioned by the characters at all. We literally have no idea. She's literally a stand in. I think they couldn't, you know, have someone who physically embodied this drug. So they have a few people who kind of deal it and that's about it. I mean, Machine Gun Kelly's character is as strong a villain as the main antagonist and he dies in the first five minutes. I mean, this is a real issue and this isn't, this isn't, you know, a new thing. Superhero films always have problems with villains most of the time. I mean, I wasn't expecting a particularly strong antagonist, but I was expecting an antagonist, you know? I mean, there's good villains, there's bad villains, there's lazy villains, and then there's just like not even trying, which is what this film does. It doesn't even try to assert a, a focal villain. And that makes it hard to root for our characters because we don't know what they're really fighting against. It's just a bunch of goons who pop pills and then punch through walls or have really stretchy arms or whatever. And it's just weird. Um, and it's really off-putting because you just don't know what they're really going for. Um, I read an article the other day on, I think it was Vulture or something like that, on why these needle drop action sequences need to be stopped. The ones that Jack was mentioning earlier where it's kind of a fight scene to a pop song. I think I'm taking the unpopular stance in there, but I actually really like it. I really like these kind of action sequences. I think pop music adds a real kind of, it makes them really memorable. And I'm not saying that's the case for all of them because I think something like The Old Guard did it atrociously. I mean, there are these kind of centuries old, like warriors fighting to like, uh, you know, top of the pop songs from like 2019 or whatever it is. And that's really distracting and awful. So it can be done badly. And don't get me wrong, when it's done badly, it is shocking. But I wrote a little list just off the top of my head. Uh, Kingsman, I think does a great job of this. Like some of my favorite action sequences are probably from those Kingsman films. And that's not purely down to, because they are extremely well choreographed. Matthew Vaughan knows how to shoot action. And I always don't talk about Kingsman on the podcast. I don't know why, but there we go. Um, they're really well shot, but the pop music does kind of elevate it. You know, you whack on like Elton John or the Sunshine Band or whoever's in that, or you know, and it just elevates it for me. I think if you do it well, it turns out really well and really memorable. Uh, the Boys does it really well. Um, I think they use the kind of Iggy Pop and Billy Idol and things like that in there. It's really great. But once again, that's because they know how to implement it and they know what music to implement and what's appropriate. Uh, Umbrella Academy is another one that does it fairly well. I think that is very derivative of the boys again, because once again, Netflix is stealing from things that do better than it and making stuff that's similar but worse. Um, and I think Guardians of the Galaxy is the real one alongside Kingsman that probably pioneered this style in recent history. Obviously, you know, they've used pop music and action sequences before, but this kind of modern trend was inspired by Guardians of the Galaxy. And they use it in the first one and the second one. And I think that's probably the best we've seen it done. And I do want to carry on seeing that because that's kind of part of the reason I go to these movies, just to watch these kind of great, well-made action sequences choreographed to good music that I regularly enjoy and is even better when you're watching people fight to it. But I think Project Power's issue is the same issue that it has with everything else, is that it's copying something and not fully understanding what makes what it's copying so good and taking the surface visual and oral you know, aspects of what it's trying to mimic and then repeating that, but worse. And I think that's the issue here. I don't think there's an issue with needle drop action sequences. I think they're really effective, but when done wrong or inappropriately or by someone who kind of gets the idea of what it's supposed to look like and feel like, but doesn't fully have a grasp on it, it's just trying to copy what someone else has done. That's when you end up with something pretty shocking. And that's what happened with the old guard. And that's what happened here. Uh, I think the old guard action sequences are slightly better than this, but then again, they're pretty unmemorable as well. But it comes back to what I was saying earlier. If you make an action film and the action sequences are bad, what are you doing? 
I, I, I seriously can't talk about this film anymore because I'm, I'm going to, I seriously will have, a, have an aneurysm. But I'll just, I'll just point, I'm just going to talk about relevant themes around the film. But just to add on to what you just said about the needle drop, Rory, I think I, 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 do, I don't detest it. I just don't like it when it's done in, in such like a contemporary tokenism fashion. I think if it elicits mood, I'm there for it. And I think just to go back, back even further than Kingsman, I think the film that did it for me, where I think it's still the pinnacle, is Kick-Ass. By, again, by Matthew Vaughan. It, it, it's, it's undoubtedly, it's convention he likes to use, but he seems to use it every time with a really sort of entertaining or it, it, regardless of an, an emotive mood. Every time he uses it, it works. And then you have David Ayer with, with Suicide Squad and it's just tokenism at its finest. And I think there's probably a thin line between it, but I think it's ultimately it's trust in the filmmaker. If the filmmaker loves the material and, and, and chooses sort of the score, or a contemporary s- s- song, uh, I think Tarantino does it as well. Uh, I don't. Do, I don't really like the book, but I think he does it really well. But if you love your character and you, you're passionate about your writing, and you you can elevate it with, with with song, and I just don't think you can do that in stuff like this, which which I just don't think it's organic whatsoever. But just just to move on from that, I mean, th- there was a conversation about maybe seven or eight years ago where Netflix announced in this huge press release that they were going to make their own um, features, TV, they were going to make their own studio. And there was a conversation at that point in time, and it was quite cynical to have a look at it just because they'd not really showcase what they could have done. But I think it's interesting to bring it back now, considering that we're at this point with with everything we've seen this year uh, in 2020, like you mentioned. But there was this conversation about how long it would take for Netflix to make features of their own, of substance, or it would just be the breeding ground of other people's shit. And we're, we're sort of almost a decade beyond that now. And it, it's interesting to sort of answer that question with Project Power because in the same year, we've had Extraction and we've had The Irishman from Netflix. And it, 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 does, it does beg the question, sorry, last year was prob- probably The Irishman, but let, that's just in the last six months anyway. There's, there's just two sides of the coin there where you have these expensive but no doubt incredibly ambitious um, visions from auteurs. And then you have, you know, a film like Extraction by Sam Hargreaves, who who is beginning his career, but knows his stuff being in that certain uh, market. And then you have Project Power. And at this point in time, I find it very difficult to sort of acknowledge 10 years before, 10 years after now, on which, on which side of the coin Netflix are facing because I, I don't think as a bit as a for longevity as a business technique I don't think you can release The Irishman and um, The Kissing Booth I just don't know how that will work now granted we're talking about a multimedia corporation who is on streaming so technically you don't really have a brand you don't have an ideology you, you just you know a procurer of films but this has a netflix staple to it and what we're seeing from amazon amazon have got that oscar with manchester by the sea they're making films these dramas that yeah benny's back nobody went really goes to see it but they're still putting a lot of money into sort of these independent films and getting a response from it and, and i think they're genius to have done that amazon are not going out there making a 200 million dollar film they're, they're giving kenneth lonegren 
$25 million, go make a film with Casey Affleck produced by Matt Damon and written by Matt Damon and just, just, just do it. And the results speak for itself. What, what really are Netflix doing here? Because to me, it seems to be, it, it falls on the latter. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shopping ground of Scorsese can't get the financing for Paramount. So who does he go ne- next to? Netflix or Apple TV? And I don't think as a streaming service, that is where you want to be with your material. You don't want to be someone's second choice because you'll get the extra 50 million. You want to be the breeding ground of Netflix are making some really interesting stuff. They're making stuff that you can't release in a cinema. They're making some incredibly divisive work. It doesn't matter if those films don't work. As long as it's ambitious and and diverse and divisive, I think you'll, at the end of the day, it's, it's pocket change to Netflix anyway. So just build it, make it. And as, as Field of Dreams once said, they will come. However, with Project Power, no fucker in their right mind is looking at this film and thinking, right, this is Netflix at the best possible standard it can be. And again, to answer the question, are, are they a breeding ground of important, in, 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 not even important, but engaging entertain, entertainment of their own originals or are they now just a second choice fiddle? And to be honest, Pro- Project Power is slowly solidifying the latter for me because I can't really think of what they have. Up- up- yes, they're working with Charlie Kaufman. Okay. It's when Spielberg has to choose where he wants to go because Scorsese has already made his choice. DiCaprio has already made his choice. It's, it's just becoming an interesting sort of element to know that who's going to be in-house at Netflix. Noah Baumbach? Okay, but none of his films sort of are, 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 are a ground for sort of this cinematic entailment of, oh, we have to see the new Noah Baumbach film. No, Noah Baumbach has his fans. Where's Wes Anderson going to choose? You know, they have to start thinking of, you know, Alfonso Cuaron has chosen Netflix. Will Cuaron choose it again? I have no idea. And I, I think they had the chance to get something there. They didn't. They, they had a good shot. They didn't. Parasite with Neon, I mean, A24. Neon again with Portrait of a Lady on Fire that probably should have been nominated, not nominated, probably should have got some accolades anywhere. So just again, just to reiterate, we're, st- we're still a long way from deciding where it is, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably being slightly cynical on it, but again, that's the sort of routine I have to go through in, in, in this uh, Clappercast series. But I just don't see what Netflix are building. I just don't think you can release The Kissing Booth 2, this, and with the Irishman, or with Charlie Kaufman, you well, know, Scors- I just Scorsese's jump ship as well. Yeah, I mean, he's two hundred million dollar deal. I think it's a five feature plan. Let's just say this now. Again, this is going to be very cynical, and I cannot believe we're saying this now. The last film Scorsese will make on planet Earth, you know, you've got you've got to have that fingers crossed. Will be an Apple TV production. The next five films he will make, beginning with the Flowers of the Killer Moon. Bad documentaries, maybe he'll make one with Netflix again. Who knows? But the next layer of life that Martin Scorsese will produce will be exclusive for Apple TV+. Plus. Has he signed a five-film contract with them? Yeah, I think it's, it's a five- or eight-picture deal. It's worth, I think, I think he's got a $200 million deal with it, and that's just to exclusively produce and create. Now, if that doesn't... That, that, that has massive... Rep- um, Oh, what's the word? It has massive repercussions for the whole medium in general, don't get me wrong. And I think an author of his calibre going to a streaming service should, 
should be, be very scary for quite a lot of authors. And I'm telling you right now, <laughs> I have been, <laughs> I'm going so cynical, but I have to say it, Spielberg will be next. There's no way Spielberg can make a Ready Player One for Paramount again. Maybe he can, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't, think, he, I just don't think anyone will give Spielberg um, the time of day sooner rather than later. And I think Safety, the Safdie brothers have done one with HBO on A24. But we're going back to this ideology of in-house collaborations. Scorsese, um, you know, he's different. Spielberg, you know, he's, he's got his issue with DreamWorks. He's, he's, a, he's a founding member of it. He works for Paramount. And then you have, you know, you've Nolan's with Warner Brothers, you Kubrick with Warner Brothers, the Wachowskis with Warner Brothers. That's going to come back now. For a long time, it didn't see that was sort of and a thing where it could stay and solidify, but now it looks like we're going to go back to that. And I think people are starting in the streaming wars. I mean, there was like five or six years ago, what's going to happen to physical media? I think that's a done deal now. I think we all know where that's going. But the conversation now is, where are these directors, these important directors going to end up? And people are having that conversation. That's already been dealt with now. If Scorsese is going to Apple TV and he gets the money, people are going to gravitate towards that. And I just think if Scorsese who's going to, his last few films on planet earth, as I've said, are going to be exclusives for Apple TV. What, what where are Netflix going to go? You know, I just, I, I just very coy on the idea of, 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 of the eventuality of what Netflix will become. And I think they've already solidified that. And I just think we're just going to wait and, and just to see it become a, a realization. Mm-hmm. Well, Netflix were originally kind of the shit pile for a lot of films when they, when, when they were first starting off at least, cause they just kind of, I remember there was that whole thing about Holmes and Watson about how it was so bad even Netflix wouldn't buy it. But getting that reputation and that notoriety isn't exactly going to attract, you know, your big name directors to come and work with them if they think they're this kind of purveyor of studio garbage. But I just just question, I can't remember, a Warner Brothers and HBO intertwined, would Nolan move to HBO then? Is that a kind of... I think that they are a partnership with HBO Max, yeah, Warner, Warner uh, Media, but it's not, it's like a subdivision. So technically it'll go through Warner Brothers on media, but it won't be, you know, I don't think they've got like a, an actual partnership, but um, it's the same thing. Would it be HBO. similar to with Hulu and Neon? Like it's still a Neon production, but it, like they all go to Hulu. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, sorry, that's exactly like that, yeah. Yeah, Nolan, Nolan on streaming doesn't work, I don't think. I think it definitely depends on the film. I think I think it's interesting to think about these A24 directors like you were talking about, like that caliber of director. So, you know, extremely successful and critically lauded, but not spectacle. Like you, you'll, well, I was about to say, you'll never see a Michael Bay film on streaming service, but Six Underground was a Netflix production, wasn't it? And that's a worry in a sense, because whilst, you know, Michael Bay has his naysayers and I have been a naysayer in the past, Nolan, Bay, I'm trying to think of some other spectacle focused directors are um, destined for the cinema. But I think, yeah, get, getting these streaming services involved is really going to be an issue for that. But I think, yeah, as I was saying, these kind of A24 directors, so Safety Brothers, maybe Ari Aster, uh, Mike Mill, Mike Mills, um, who else? Maybe Barry Jenkins at The Stretch, people like that. I feel like those are the kind of films that someone like Netflix or Amazon should be investing in because that's relatively indie productions brought to widespread attention through streaming platforms as Netflix did with, you know, Marriage Story or anything like that, or Roma, you know, obviously Quarren's quite a big name, but I think the function of these streaming services, if they want to gain this prestige that Netflix is so desperately after, almost in a pathetic kind of way, they're just 
cry out for that, that kind of best picture Oscar, aren't they? Um, they need to be backing these kind of filmmakers and bringing them to the forefront. I know we talked about um, that horrible, horrible thing homemade a few weeks ago. Um, and that's an example of how to do it the wrong way. But Netflix needs to pull out its finger and use the you know, huge amount of money that it has to back these hugely kind of critically lauded yet financially burdened filmmakers to show it to a wider audience, increase that filmmaker's audience, and then thus, therefore, surely that's only a good thing for Netflix. I mean, I don't know how much of a financial return it will be for them, but if they're trying to gain this critical appraisal, then they need to start doing more of that and less crap team uh, rom-coms or derivative superhero films. That's at least, you know, obviously from someone who's not in the financial film business, but surely from where I'm sitting, that's the way to go if they're trying to get where they want to be. But let's remember that's only one direction for Netflix, right? It's like our bubble of like film Twitter, like critically acclaimed. And they're doing stuff like, oh, they're releasing their films on the Criterion Collection. They save that, like they're preserving the, that one theater in New York. They're giving small theater or small theaters their releases. Um, but like that is only going to get Netflix so far. They want to be this global brand and they are this global brand. So like they need the teen movies. You know, the Kissing Booth 2 and the Irishman are not meant for the same demographics. Netflix is trying to reach multiple, if not just all demographics with everything they're doing. They're trying to reach international audiences. They're trying to reach, um, you know, just every audience you can imagine Netflix is trying to invest in documentaries, children stuff, um, adult comedies. They're just trying to reach everything. I think it's really easy to kind of get lost in like, oh, the bubble of like, oh, what my demographic would like to see and what my bubble and what we talk about here is to invest in these award season films, but that's only going to get them so far. You look like some, you look at something like the Criterion channel um, or like any of those smaller streaming services. It's an inherently niche audience and Netflix, especially if they want to continue investing to where they can get the Irishman and they can continue to back these bigger and bigger films, they're going to need to reach all audiences. So I think it actually makes remarkable sense um, that there are these films coming out. And when we look at something like Project Power, you know, this is not a film really meant, I don't feel, for critical acclaim or for, you know, film Twitter to get behind it. It's meant to be an action movie for general audiences. And where it's not a great action movie, I think plenty online that you've seen, just general public have accepted this film for what it is and enjoyed it enough. Um, same with like The Old Guard. I know multiple people who really like that movie just as a basic action movie who are not trying to look at it through this critical eye. So I think with the conversation of what is Netflix doing, what is their identity trying to be, unlike a lot of other streaming services, simply because of the size of it, it's not trying to have one identity, but just all the identities, which, you know, we'll see if it's a mistake. It could be huge for it could be a good thing it could be a bad thing we don't know um, but I think that's clearly the direction they're going in a few weeks ago um myself Cass and you'd be my witness here I hope um, and and Jakob were, were talking about it and we did a, a small a portion of the news and we cut it out for running times but what we spoke about is that about um Tenet and uh, Christopher Nolan and just just to paraphrase I, my whole argument was I, I think Nolan's long-term decision has been made for him with what's happened at the moment. And I think it's a sad realisation to, to sort of bear witness, but it has been made for him. And um, he's going to die on that hill no matter what. Fair play to him. You've, you've got to have a passion. If you don't, if you don't you know, stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So granted, fair enough. That being said, if that, if that, if that decision's already been made for him, I can only imagine how terrifying that would be for an author of his standard and to see this Project Power on Netflix and think, 
Yeah, that could be a home for Tenet. And I'm just thinking, I can't imagine how frightened to death he would be. Because if this is the standard that he wants his films on, and I know that's an incredibly pompous and, and, and a naive thing to say, but we're talking about Christopher Nolan, who, 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 has, who has got what maybe, what, seven of the nine films he's made in the zeitgeist. Like, the influence of him is beyond belief. Like, you can't argue against that. But to have Tenet or possibly something else on the same platform as Project Power and the Kissing Booth 2, I think it will keep him up at night. And I think if Apple TV are acquiring Greyhound, and say what you will about it, I'm more positive than I think a lot of other people were. But the standard there of $50 million, what $50 million will get you from Paramount or Sony, should I say, um, to Apple TV for a Tom Hanks blockbuster who are working with Leonardo DiCaprio on a deal on, with, who have, who's already signed Martin Scorsese up exclusively I, I think, and I don't want to think, speak for him, but I'm going to do anyway, because that's what I'm like. I think his decision has been made for him where he needs to go. And I think that's just a sad realisation that if I can tell where Nolan will eventually exhibit his work, maybe maybe he'll go on HBO with, with the Warner Brothers connection. I don't know. Maybe he'll, in the next 10 years, there'll be another streaming service, God forbid. But it's very clear that Apple TV, and yes, you know, nobody's watching For All Mankind. No one is watching Seats of a Carson with his wonderful review on the website. Go check it out. But nobody is watching Defending Jacob. I hope someone watched Beastie Boys documentary because I think Spike Jones is an interesting director. And I hope people are watching Halla. Um, that I know Alina wrote a review, but a wonderful film. They're on sort of this identity arc now where they're just starting out but already the flavor and the recipe is there to make something or make an identity for themselves that's that's not only engaging but it's diverse work and i'm just sort of left not to jump everywhere but i think carson you point out the most important thing about netflix is that they're diversing the product to a to a degree that's untenable you cannot diversify yourself with that amount of money You, you won't work and, and not to make a metaphor for it, but when you have like a company like Mitsubishi, for example, Mitsubishi will make cars, they'll manufacture cars, but they'll also manufacture engines and, and, and all sorts of like technological things that's relevant to their overall business brand. When, when I see like Jaguar, and I'm just making cars here for the sake of it, but when they make shoes, I'm just left unfounded, like what the fuck, is, what, how far can you get from that? And to me, you can diversify but with relevancy. And I think it's just untenable to diversify that much. And the problem is, is that with Project Power, to, to, to me, is, is it worthy diversifying to, to reach someone with this make cinema that is unique? Because this is derivative of everything we've all, all ever seen. I mean, we, the Boys came out, what, two years ago or a year ago, and it's got already got three seasons. It's done. It's done. Like they just made the old guard about fucking superheroes. Like it's done. The, Netflix are quite clearly not the trendsetter here. They're just not. They're on the bandwagon, and it's just it's so frustrating because there are there are filmmakers out there, independent. Like David Lynch would detest working with these people because of his ideology of what cinema is and all power to him. But you would have thought that Netflix would have... I mean, again, I just contradict myself because you look at uh, his, his short film, so he's willing to sort of be distributed there. 
where were Netflix with Twin Peaks? I just, it, where were Netflix with, with, with Scorsese? I know they've got a working relationship, but where, where are they? You don't hear anything about these deals being made at the moment. I just, I'm just, I'm just so worried because at this point in time, I know I'm rambling because I'm, I'm just, I'm generally pissed off with, with, with Project Power. But if this isn't the material that Netflix want to make with the Kissing Booth 2, it becomes, and maybe not so much for Project Power because I just think it's a missed opportunity, whereas, whereas the Kissing Booth 2 is crafted purely for um, this algorithm meme culture where heart will take the piss out of it, but then 200 million people will see it. And it's a great, it's a great, it's a great product and, 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 and a great sort of algorithm to have because ultimately it all comes back to the source, but longevity, I'm sorry, if you want to be the laughing stock in the moment before long, you'll be, you'll be defined by that. And I don't think that's what a medium streaming service want to, want to be defined as. Otherwise, it's just it's just waiting for the inevitable Disney Plus to just you know garner up the the Disney image. I mean, Netflix now are on a, on a losing battle against Amazon and Netflix and Apple TV. As much as I've just slid that that well, not slid, but I've just said that they've, they've got issues with sort of broadening the horizons because it's a it's a relatively new um, platform. I think, believe it or not, two years ago Netflix were the number one platform to sort of you know you have to beat them. Now. I think there's one underneath them and it's Apple TV. And I think if they can get Killers of the Flower Moon off to a good start, I think, I think there's writing on the wall, seriously. I know that's a really hot take to say, but I think the writing's on the wall for Netflix. And that's not just because Project Power's pissed me off. It is, but it's not at the same breath. So I don't want to be defined by that. But to me, this is what Netflix want to create, then that is going to be a problem, a massive problem. I think... We all live in fear of waking up one morning and looking on the internet and seeing one of those Netflix trailers that says the new film from, you know, Terrence Malick or Chris Nolan streaming exclusively on Netflix from whatever date. But um, I was thinking about that and then I realised I watched Night of Cups on my iPhone, so maybe I'm part of the problem. Let's move on next rather rapidly. Last but not least to Sputnik. Um, at the height of the Cold War, a Soviet spacecraft crash lands after a mission goes awry, leaving the commander as its only survivor. After a renowned Russian psychologist is brought in to evaluate the commander's mental state, it becomes clear that something dangerous may have come back to Earth with him. Carson, you're writing the review for Sputnik on the website. Let's start with you. Look, judging by the trailer and just what this film was trying to be, which seemingly was a blockbuster, I had very little expectations for this. This is a summer alien blockbuster, but it surprised the hell out of me. I had a really great time with Sputnik. It reminded me in a lot of ways of Arrival, even at times with just how like subtly and quietly it handles some of its subject material. Um, it is undoubtedly slow at portions, but I found this to be an effective thriller. I really love the alien component of the film. 
Um, and just, I found it really engaging just to learn more about the creature and understand how it works. It's fresh, it is original, it doesn't just go through the motions. And by the end, it is shockingly mature. It doesn't, it really doesn't go where you expect it to go. Um, if you want just a very average, like summer blockbuster fun film, I don't even know if this would really be the best for you because where it is a cinematically a blockbuster, um, like I said, I just found it relating much more to something like Arrival than anything else. Um, I had a really, really good time with this film. Um, it, it really shocked. I'm glad that just just on the topic of what we've talked about today, this is most definitely a palate cleanser for me anyway. So I'm going to be far more relaxed and and uh, articulated and, and far more approachable. So I apologize for my behavior. But this is where calm, collected, uncynical Jack arises. Um, like you, Carson, I think I went into this even more blind than you did. I think the one thing I went into this knowing is that it premiered at Tribeca and, and I think we tried to sort of gain a screener there and they were very protective of it. And usually for me, if it's very protected, then it's either horrific or they have something special on their hands. So going into that, I mean, you, it's two sides of a, as a, of a very different coin there. So I, I, would, I would say I was anticipating it, but I didn't really have big expectations. And I think I'd just seen the poster. But after, after what you've just said, Cassin, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. I was really pleasantly surprised with this. More so, in fact, I think I generally quite really enjoyed it. Um, I, I, had, I had sort of no idea what this was really going to be about until probably a few details, like it was a science fiction horror set in the USSR during the Cold War. And, and that, to me, sort of like, well, that, that's a really interesting idea. Um, purely because I think well, I'm going to go on, actually I'll go into a little bit in a, in a minute because there's a reason why I really enjoyed that um, after the screening I really do think that not only is Abramenko one to watch behind the camera but this might generally be one of the best science fiction features I've seen in some time and I think probably since Arrival which I mean it's 2016 so you're talking about four years there of, of, of a good lot of cinema and I think this probably takes a clowning, uh, clowning crowning glory um it's interesting that you, you made the comparisons Carson, to, to arrival because without you saying that now i i didn't really notice that in the film i i thought it was like a mixture between splice and district nine i thought like it was taking like this intimacy and emotive connection um of the former where we were dealing with science on a basis where it was very intellectual it was very intimately produced and almost claustrophobic to witness these two people make advancements in their technology. And I, I felt like it was, it was sort of very similar, but the reason why I felt it was District 9, and this is something I, I generally quite like in cinema is where I always appreciate, regardless of the finished product, is when you subvert an expectation. And I think what District 9 does above all else is that it doesn't take the quintessential alien invasion story and put it in New York uh, or, or in London. It puts it in uh, um, South Africa during political and social unrest. And here, to place it within the USSR during the Cold War, I thought was genius because it's one side of, of the argument or one side of, of society and culture and history that you don't really get to hear of because it was so um, historically uh, quiet and opaque of its, of its actions. Um, and obviously within uh, Western um, civilization, all you hear is uh, Roswell and, and shit like Area 52 and, and stuff like that. So to hear from the other side, of a different culture and a different atmosphere. It's always sort of refreshing to me. So I was sort of hooked from the beginning. Um, but regardless, it's not just the hook that, 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 get, that got me. I think taking the setting away um, from this like quintessential Americanized narrative, I think, like I said, it adds to the immersion to the tale. And it being in, in another language not only height, heightens that. Um, 
but it, I also really enjoyed the fact that it neglected modern technology. And instead, like these characters have got bare bone advancements to work with. So there's not like this expositional plunge of, well, you know, the system, blah, blah, blah. You didn't get to get lost in this, in this dialogue heavy explanation of just utter bullshit. We were just there in the midst of this scientific breakthrough. Um, and therefore, without this exposition dump, the characters were so concentra concentrated on. It, it, it itself then becomes a character piece. I mean, it's just every decision the film makes, um, filmmaking wise, just elevates the whole material for me. I think it's mysterious and enigmatic to a point. Um, and that's sort of what I was worried about. I was worried that it was going to go the conventional sort of route within its narrative and within its genre specifically. But, and I think it does come full circle and, and, it, and it ties loose ends up quite well. It's sort of like a singular tale. You don't need excess material to understand what's going on. Um, my only problem with that is not to get too um, dark into the cynical nature of it because I've, I've done that today. But um, I felt like it sort of it's, uh, I felt like it suffered from these loose ends being timed up a little bit too well. I mean, considering the amount of mythology and lore Abramenko has at his disposal, I think it sort of tied the knot a little bit too well. Um, but but nevertheless, I think that the, the designs um, are most definitely alien inspired, especially Alien Covenant, the sort of latter half of Ridley's work, uh, Ridley Scott's work. But um, again, it didn't feel alien to me. It felt like it was its own entertainment. It's crafted with horror in mind, which was also quite refreshing. Um, I thought the opening in particular is like really well done as well. And its pacing and character motifs um, are there. Um, but if anything, I was hoping it would spend a little bit more time in outer space, obviously not knowing what the film was about, not watching the trailer. Um, that opening, for me, I, I felt that was what I was going to watch, and I was hooked. So I'm glad it didn't spend its time there, um, and I think contextually it does move on well, because the, the mystery in itself and its character piece does develop far better than it would do in that place, but I, I just felt that it would be a really interesting tale, an intimate tale to have, compared to, you know, life that we had a couple of years ago with, um, with Jake Gyllenhaal in the lead. Um, but there are a few strange character moments, ultimately, that, that, that sort of underwhelm a little bit. I mean, personally, I found to be a sort of perplexing regarding decision-making, especially from uh, um, Ascana um, Akinchina's character. I can't believe I pronounced that right. I probably didn't, but let me go with it. Um, it felt quite tropey to cause the film to move forward in what she does, the character being this really intellectual person. I mean, she's in this predicament because of her intellect. Um, she makes some very strange decisions, a lot of uh, emotion over, um, heart overhead, should I say. And I didn't really find them like overly conscious of that factor, but on reflection, I think it does dampen the overall film. Um, and again, I think this might be a political thing. I and mean, we see it a lot with um, Russian cinema and we, we see it a lot with Chinese cinema. And again, you see it a lot with American cinema. I'm not, I'm not pinpointing um, cultures against each other, but with the political uh, conversations on, on, on war and armies and on, on, on uh, those people who defend us, I think writers, especially when it goes through certain ideologies, let's say, with politics and, and with war, the films have to sort of defend itself of being the ultimate uh, saviour. You know, if you have a, a Russian war film, none of the Russians are bad people. You know, none of the, I mean, The Wandering Earth, none of those people in that film are bad, even though they're working with Russians and, and what happens. Like, they're all these quintessential um, heroes. And I think this is a film that also suffers from that a little bit. I mean, it's difficult to sort of see what um, Akinshina's character 
is anywhere has a thought flow to herself. I mean, it's not very organic and it, it didn't feel like natural. I didn't think it brought like a natural organic nature to the proceedings ultimately. Um, regardless of it's like a little bit stunty um, finale, I think it sort of goes a little bit too far on being melodramatic and melancholy. I, I was really surprised at this and I think I'm, I'm really, really, really excited for a lot of people to see this. So yeah, I think I'm the least hot on this out of all of us. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to mention that this is, as feature debuts go, I thought this was pretty strong in a kind of technical sense. Like it's very well made, well put together, it looks good, it sounds great, good performances, everything you could want in just like a well-made film. Mechanically, it's, it's there, which it's, it's surprising for most feature debuts. So I think it is promising to see where this director goes. But for me, this just had a few too many uh, issues with it for me to fully enjoy. Uh, I was fully expecting a bit of a B movie, to be honest, a kind of, what's, what's the word, a kind of thing-esque where, you know, remote location, people get picked off one by one. That's kind of how it goes. Like, as you were saying, Jack, Alien Covenant, something, something along those lines. And I wasn't disappointed that it wasn't that because I'm always up, up for something that's not what you expect it to be, except what's it eventually turned out to be while it was initially interesting I wasn't a huge fan of it comes off as more of a psychological thriller kind of thing uh, the way that I saw it where these things that concern the main characters which you think are psychological eventually manifest themselves to be real and how that intertwines with an alien narrative I thought was an interesting thing I feel like I've seen that somewhere before but I can't quite pin down where it was um, my main issue here was the characters I thought they were too dull um, the main character, as Jack was saying, she, she could even be a bit of a Mary Sue kind of image. There's nothing really wrong with her, but there's nothing interesting about her. She's introduced as a bit of a renegade, but she makes stupid decisions um, throughout and she just wasn't interesting. She was a very kind of blank piece of paper character that stayed blank the whole way through. And that was the same with most of them. There's an antagonist who's painted as an antagonist. The actor looks malicious like you know he's one of those actors who, with a face who you kind of cast for the for the bad guy in inverted commas um and you can see that from kind of a mile off and the yeah i just i just the backbone of a good psychological thriller like this is trying to be in a sense is built off of how believable and relatable its characters are and for me they were too one-dimensional too dull had too many issues with them for me to fully invest in them and there is a kind of semi-twist at the end, which I will, well, it doesn't really matter because, you know, it's not, you can see it from a mile off where the antagonist is revealed and that's just very obvious from the outset and throughout. I mean, it was signposted a mile off just through casting and how they're all depicted. The characters just didn't gel with me and therefore I was very unengaged. Um, and it doesn't help that it's a very slow-paced film and there's nothing wrong with a slow-paced film. And you guys talked about Arrival earlier, which is a slower pace but I consider that one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time because the characters are interesting. It's framed in a really unique way. Um, and I think it's almost kind of revolutionary the way that film is framed and put together. It fools the audience in a kind of amazing way, but this was far too slow and it doesn't try anything interesting with its structure. It's just a kind of dull psychological thriller for me. The one thing that I've already praised is the visual effects and the creature design. Uh, Russian visual effects is something that I've kind of discovered a bit more recently. Uh, there are two films, one called T-34 about a tank crew. 
and one called Attraction, which is directed by the guy who plays the villain in this. And the VFX in those films are fantastic. If you look up uh, the fight scene from Attraction, it'll rock your world because it's better than most of the stuff we see stateside these days. And T-34 is a great kind of tank film where the particle effects and stuff like that are great. I did nick all this knowledge from uh, a Corridor digital video that I watched, but um, it is pretty fantastic if you look at how, how solid it is. And the effects are really, really solid. I don't think any of us can deny this creature looks pretty fantastic. Um, and I can definitely see where the creature design comes from. It was very kind of Cloverfield-esque meets uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers kind of thing. And I thought that was a really nice way to compound those all together. And um, also, the, the, the not, th not thematically, um, atmospherically, it reminded me a lot of Neil Blomkamp's short films that he, he's done off, um, I think one's called Racker, I think it was the one that reminded me of the most. This kind of gross out alien designs, which I thought was very cool. And I think that's done well, but that's the only real high point from this film for me is the creature design and, and the visual effects. I'm not going to say this is what happened to you, Rory, but I think one thing that a lot of people are going to face watching this movie is disappointment watching it at home and on VOD rather than cinematically. It's very, very clear how this is shot. And I mean, we also just have the knowledge that this was going to be the plan, that this was going to be released theatrically. And I think that's definitely where like this film would have shined the most when it comes to sucking in audiences with the slower pace and the more uh, like the atmosphere, like those are going to work best if you can see it in a dark room on a big screen where you can just focus and get emerged into the filmmaking. Um, I think it's really disappointing that it is going to VOD. And I mentioned like, it is hard right now, right? To be like, oh, I wish you would have waited a year, you know, push back a release or whatever to where you could do it theatrically. Um, but I, just, I really wish I had the chance to see this in the theater because I think like that would have just added, like put it to the next level for me. At home on VOD, undoubtedly, it has those moments where it feels slow, like slow and a bit boring at times, just simply because you cannot get fully emerged into the world how it clearly wants you to. And I just seeing the film though, I have faith that theatrically it would have done that more for me. Um, so like I said, I'm not saying that is what happened to you, Roy, but I think that a lot of people will face that issue. Oh, I just, just, just respond to that. I think you're probably right, Carson. I think if I was sitting in a dark room and kind of got more involved in the atmosphere of it, I would have enjoyed it more. But I think something else that I suffered from is expectation. And I'm not one to, to not to dislike a film because it's not what I expect it to be. In fact, most of the time, if a film's not something I expected it to be, I normally come out more pleased with it than I would have thought, if that makes sense. But yeah, I just didn't gel with it. I thought it was borderline boring. I think that was my main issue. But obviously, yeah, differing expectations and seeing it in the appropriate place, I probably would have got more out of it than I did. But that's kind of my lasting thought on it. It's strange, Carson, you mentioned the cinema... Um environment for it because i greatly enjoyed it watching it on my tv i really did i thought i thought it was very intimate i thought it was very atmospheric just watching it in the uh, in sort of the the, the uh, my, my own my own household however i do think there's there's one scene where it, it just i cannot get it out of my head where i think it would have worked so well in um in the cinemas when we see there is a certain scene regarding the alien character of which we get a little bit more depth about of what's sort of hidden behind the surface of what our main character in the film um, understands. 
and it, it's a it's a very gloomy very cold setting where, where uh, you both know what i'm talking about where um of what they've been doing to the, to the alien now how it's shot is is very reminiscent of 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 uh the, well, I can't believe I'm saying it. it's such a random comparison. But when uh, Nolan um, directs the Joker in his first meeting um, in the kitchen in the Dark Knight, where it's this slow, this like the conversation, and then the sound it just it sucks all the sound out, and all of a sudden you just focus on that character and you hear the laugh, and then the character sits down in his introduction and it bang you straight there. I felt the exact same way when this this Leyland character is sliding through this corridor. And you don't know what really is going, going to happen. You sort of get an idea it's not going to be nice. And you hear these squelchers, you hear this, 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 this alien for the first time showcase probably its true um, animalistic and, and, and horror-filled uh, motifs. And it, it, something happens, obviously, put one-on-one -on -one together. But I've never felt more sort of unhappy that I couldn't see that in a cinema because I just think the sound design of this film would have been exquisite. It's not a film that really... I don't think it's like the pinnacle of filmmaking here. There's nothing, there's nothing really involved where it's, oh, wow, that's, that's such an interesting uh, choice of cinematography or that's such an interesting choice of production design. Setting your film in the Cold War during the USSR on, a, on, a, on an Air Force base in the middle of, of, of nowhere, you're going to be using a lot of greys and a lot of dark blues and probably a few browns and blacks here and there. So the film's never, it never looks like visually outstanding, don't me wrong, but I just think that, that I like you said, Cassa, the cinema screen would have elevated those dark corridors, that, that gloomy blue, cold nature to it tenfold. It is a shame that we we, we probably will never get to see this in a cinema. Um, but I but I do think that because it works sort of on that cheap level of not needing a massive budget to get its point across, I still think it will work on home video. Fingers crossed anywhere. If I was to point out one thing that I would have liked to see in the cinema, um Obviously, that scene you were talking about, Jack's great. But the, the, the highlight for me is probably the opening where they're in space and you hear these kind of bumps around the spaceship. Can you imagine that? And kind of surround sound. And then you get a tiny glimpse of something outside through one of the portholes. I think it's moments like that where you definitely see that this was built for cinemas. And I do think it is a shame that it didn't get a cinematic release. But... Once again, yeah, I can't, I can't blame where I saw it uh, for me not enjoying it. But I can definitely see Carson and, and Jack where you're, where you're coming from. And I can see the merit that you guys are talking about, but it's not, wasn't for me. I just want to just point out one thing, just I think it'd be an interesting. I like to do this every other week, just to, when we highlight a filmmaker. But I, I'm quite eager to see where Igor Abramenko is going to go from here because he's made... He's made Sputnik and he's made the, the film before this, which is a short film, loosely um, an inspiration for, for Sputnik. I, 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 I don't want to give someone career advice when, I, when I'm not in that certain career, let's say. I don't want to give a director advice of where to go, but, it, but I can give it an opinion nonetheless. I think, weirdly enough, I think he's already at a crossroads because quite clear, I think, from, from how I passionately have spoken, probably yourself, Cass, and even from you, I think Abramenko is, is at home in sci-fi. Now, to, to, would I like to see another science fiction film from this director? The, the answer for me is yes, most definitely. I'll be there day one, no problem. But I just feel like how the director sort of has pauses when the film, how, how he understands how to dictate pace and how he, how, how he sort of articulates his production design to, to echo moves. 
I would like to see him perhaps evolve to a different genre. But that being said, I just hope that this isn't another Neil Blomkamp situation where we have a director such as Blomkamp, um, who was meant to make the Halo movie for, for years, was told by Peter Jackson that, and look, it's not going to happen. Let's make something you want to make. He has, he has District 9 on his mind. He makes that. And granted, with Peter Jackson's pr- production um, and him producing as well. And I think, to get to long story short, I think regarding Blomkamp, without Jackson, I don't think he would have had District 9 to the calibre it was. However, that, that forward, you had Elysium and then you had Chapa. Now, say what you will about, about Blomkamp, and, and, I'm, and I, I like Elysium, and I'm, I'm, quite, <laughs> I'm quite fond of Chapa, and I've just slated Project Power, so do with that what you will, but there's definitely a drop-off there of, of, of execution. Um, and I like the sort of gritty existential social um, discussion on 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 class within both of those films especially um with with where they're set south africa um and i believe they're the ones in, in, in it probably is in america somewhere i don't know um but i just hope that we don't get into a situation where aramenko wants to sort of elevate this material once more which he has done perfectly already and then make something a little bit more broader i think and this, the comparison I'm trying to make is why I bring them together is that for a long time, Abramenko's, sorry, Abramenko, uh, Blomkamp has tried to make an alien film. And I just find that Blomkamp going into the studio system um, is probably going to be his last hope to make what he, what he wants uh, once more after he does that. But it's cl- clearly not working. Robocop's dead. Alien's dead. Um, I think that's a sign of the times. Move on. Make something independent again um, if you can get the budget. I think Abramenko probably should just push the boat and make an alien mover. I think I think he's a perfect candidate to do it. I think it's a little bit too on the nose with what he makes here, so I don't think I don't think it's probably out of the question. Don't get me wrong, but I would like to see Abramenko make a studio film. I'd like him to make something like Life, but the problem is that this is done so well in such an intimate, cheap fashion. I don't really want him to to, to sort of think that this is underneath him. I think there's nothing wrong with making something cheap and independent like Sputnik and getting exactly who you want to make it and exactly how you want to make it. And that's what we're led to believe anyway. So Abramenko for a career path is going to be very interesting because I think he's capable of both. It's just that we've seen it so much now where a director of that calibre, like Blomkamp, even like Colin Trevorov, that, that jump, which everyone would dream to make Jurassic World, would dream to make um, an alien mover. Um, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And there's, the, the, get me wrong, there's, there's loads of sort of reasons for why Trevor didn't work out. I mean, uh, the Book of Henry is, is particularly one gigantic reason why we won't ever get to see a Colin Trevor Star Wars film. But just to throw it out to you two, um, where do we see Abramenko going from this moment forward then? See, it's interesting because I would don't want him to jump into like the studio. Well, not not necessarily the studio system. But I don't want him to do like a sequel or anything or add to any franchise. I think this work is so like it feels so unique and so well crafted and so distinctly like him in a really wonderful sense. I just want to see him continue to make original product uh, projects. And I think if they can get, obviously right now we're in unprecedented times, but if they could get proper release, maybe through Netflix or a streaming service, you know, I think that this could be a really interesting partnership for Netflix or, you know, Apple TV plus or something to where he can start getting a following. I think we could be looking at like legitimately the next like big filmmaker that people on Twitter really get behind and really respect and just like, you know, in the same vein of something like Denis Villeneuve. 
Um, I think this really could be like the next big thing if he continues to make original products and doesn't get bogged down with having to deal with other people's ideas and other inputs. I think that's another thing you see when people go to make, you know, an alien movie or, um, you know, if, joining a big franchise like that is all of a sudden there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen already with that. And it's very easy for someone who has a distinct style and clear goal uh, for that to get watered down. And then therefore that could hurt his image. Um, so I really hope he doesn't do that because I'm worried he wouldn't necessarily find the same highs he would find. If he continues to make these smaller projects, but just gets them in front of more people, I think it would be something really exciting. Um, I really don't want to be the cynic here. I feel like I am for, for, for Spartanic at least. But um, my worry is with, with uh, this guy is that he has shown chops and, and Spartanic is a great kind of example of his talent as a filmmaker which is definitely there and whilst I wasn't a huge fan you know his his capability behind the camera is obviously you know very very obvious my worry is that he doesn't get out of Russia he doesn't and this is a pitfall of basically most of Russian directors that I see I mean obviously you've got Tarkovsky and Eisenstein and people like that who we know of but they never branched out into the Western studio system. And I never really know why that is, because there's no doubting that all these people are great filmmakers, but I don't, I don't know what it is that prevents them from branching over because nationality shouldn't matter when it comes to making films. And in general, it doesn't, but with these Russian directors, they just don't seem to manage to cross over. And I was thinking about if, if, if he did, and if this guy got the chance to make something weirdly the thing that jumped into my mind was um forbidden planet from 1965 i'd like him to remake forbidden planet from no not 1965 1956 i'd like him to remake forbidden planet from 1956 because i feel like he's got that kind of i feel like he could nail that like space race russian sci-fi vibe but then on a broader scale bigger budget obviously this will be set on a different planet but i feel like this is just him staying in the genre that he's comfortable in, you know, doing what we know he's capable of doing just on a broader scale with a bigger budget. And then once he's made that, that's his key. And if it's good, that's his key to do whatever the hell he wants to do. But I think you start with the lower budget Spartanek, which proves your chops, and then you get a slightly bigger budget and you go and make something that people are familiar with and that will go down well. I mean, you know, obviously I'm all for original content over remakes and stuff, but, you know, this film's what, like 70 years old? and haven't had anything like that since. So I think he redoes that, and then that's his big demo reel, and then, you know, the sky's the limit for him. And then he can probably cross over into the West. I don't know why, do you guys know why these Russian filmmakers don't cross over any idea? Like, it's there's the same no reason. Thing. It's the same thing with the, with the British, I find, is that most independent films are backed by the BFI. So what happens is that, if you make, say, Mark Jenkins is going to find the same thing, and I think Steve McQueen's also broke out of it a little bit, but usually, if you're backed by the BFI, it means that you're, you, they're a benefactor or you're a benefactor, and um, you you probably get the money through uh, for government schemes, but also like like a like a like a privatization. So it's not difficult to get um, a budget if you have a working relationship with them, and it's the same thing. You don't really see it in America because obviously it's it's a far bigger thing, but you do see it um, with with um, on the um, e uh, eastern side of, of the world where you look at Kurosawa, it's all backed by Toho, um, which it was given by governmental control after World War II. And then you've got this, which is, I think it's the RFF, but don't quote me on that, I don't think it is, which is the Russian, Russian Film Federation. 
And what happens is with Tarskovsky is that the, the, the Russian Federation or Russian general will back that. So why then leave uh, a business partner like that who has solidified everything you would like to do to a certain degree, don't get me wrong, to then move to Hollywood, to then get 19 executives in suits telling you what not to do and how to do it. So I think it's, it's ideology. But I also think that not not so much of Abramenko, but if you look at Tarsovsky and you look at Kurosawa, Kurosawa, I mean, during like the, the Cold War, the, the Chinese, um, not the Chinese, sorry, the Japanese had a work, working relationship with the Russians. They still do to this day. If you ever go visit Japan, it's full of Russian tourists and vice versa, because obviously they're quite close to each other. Um, I believe Kurosawa worked once with the Russian Federation of Film, which was on Dezu Ozerla, which is like this weird inspiration for, for Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. It's about like this Russian sh- soldier during World War II who meets this villager at Dezu, I think it's Vizala, I can't remember, I, 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 Dezu Ozerla. Um, and he's like this very, very Yoda-esque character, like Luke Skywalker makes Yoda in, in Dagobah. It's the same sort of inspiration that George Lucas took. Um, I think he only ever did it once, and it's a gigantic thing. And I think it probably, it probably busts for a long, long time what the, what the Russians could do. But also, you talk about the market they get. So China's, China's a big market, but you don't see a lot of Chinese productions come over to, to, to the US. And if you do, it's, it's with a major American star like Bruce Willis, Adrian Broder, Liam Neeson. Um, and then, you know, you've got Orlando Bloom now doing it, of all people. So it's just one of those things where I think, why leave a ship that's stable to go lead, to go jump onto one that might sink? You know, I think it's that basically. Could be wrong though. See, and I think this is one of the beautiful parts of Netflix. And I know we just you know tore them apart, but like Netflix with both I know with Chinese films with Russian films, like they offer distribution to the entire world. So it's a great platform to get those filmmakers out and into audiences on a global scale, right? Like instead of having to fight for distribution in America or whatever, like you just throw it on Netflix. I know they did this with The Wandering Earth, which was a huge hit in China and more and more people discovered that film because hey, it's just there on Netflix. So I think like, you say what you want about streaming services, but it offers a good platform for these filmmakers. So that gives me hope that hopefully they can start breaking out. And even if they don't leave Russia or their countries to come to America, that's a way to get their films in front of audiences here and get recognition for them. So at least I'm hopeful in that aspect. I just want to push back on that, Cass, and not at you or anything personal. I just want to have a topic of conversation. Would Netflix have chosen to uh, distribute The Wandering Earth if it wasn't a box office success in China? The, the answer would be no, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm not to like, but could, I just I don't want to like speak for you. Go on. I mean, no, you're not. I mean, I don't think you're necessarily wrong, but also I think like, that is one example. And I, every time you go on Netflix's library, right, they have like endless titles. So, like, I, I don't disagree there, but I'm also not willing to say like, yes, I know that is factually correct for everything yeah. they put out. But I don't think you're wrong course. though. Um, and I mean, I like, I see the point though, of like, if it's not a success, like, and I don't know how this did in Russia. I know this released theatrically there, you know, I have no idea how it did there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think you're wrong though, is I guess the point. Yeah, I mean, th- the comparison there would be that I understand Netflix does that, you know, you've got, you've got the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon sequel, but also there's like a pre-existing material there that, that elevates it again, financially motivated, don't get me wrong. But I think movie would be an interesting choice for Sputnik because I think it's a little bit different to what usually they showcase, but they're starting to sort of curate some very interesting films now, like um, Robert Mitchell's, um, David Robert Mitchell's uh, Under the Silver Lake. I think that's a very interesting sort of film for movie to take on. 
because it sort of it ticks all the brackets and the boxes, but it also it also has sort of an element to it that they're not really pushing. And I think it's that's that's again we talk about the streaming services with, with Project Power, but that's an interesting sort of ideology to put forward. Now Sputnik again, like you, like you said, Carson, I think it probably have a really good home on Netflix. It would reach hundreds of millions of people, and it would it would do Abramenko a really good deal. But I, but I think the problem with that is that. I think they would market it being something it's not. And I think it's a far more personal, intimate tale than it's than it solely rests on that that horror aspect. Because I think what Rory was saying about, like, you know, the thing and stuff like that is that you're talking about um, a, a, a creature feature, a film where you have a bunch of characters and they get picked off one by one by, by a, this alien um, monster. And I think it would become that rather than this personal tale of, of, of probably not just tragedy, but this, like, interesting comment to talk about how a persona is reflected within a society that applauds its heroes but just putting them out through the media as, as this one note historical um hero of, 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 of the ussr but not actually look at the intimacy of, of what sacrifices that person's had to entail so i think movie would, would would keep that at home but it is just interesting to, to talk about this streaming thing again because we're, we're talking about three films today and um, I think all three of them would belong on a streaming service, and I don't—I just don't know how telling that is anymore. Because if, if what how what does a film belong on, on a streaming service? Like I said, ten years ago, that was because it didn't deserve a, a cinematic release because it, it wasn't good enough. Um, I think it, it probably just it wasn't good enough um, and didn't have the the, the, the the star power to take it. But now we've had this sort of reappropriation of what it means to go to a streaming service what it means to go to vod it's just it's just a very fascinating conversation time because i think i know we spoke about about you know keeping well i mean rory said about you know why why wouldn't abramenko go to, to hollywood and stuff like that why why keep into russia or possibly like that but i think it's good to have russian voices behind russian stories i could only find that that this film would have probably been slightly skewed with an American t um, twang to it. Um, and I think it'd be interesting not to go off everywhere here, but it, I would like to Abramenko to sort of look at the Metro series on, on, on the, the video game series, which is based on, on, on novels. I think Abramenko could take his style, his, his ideology of filmmaking, uh, and especially his identity as aesthetic and really sort of craft intimate tales within that world. Cause it does have the science fiction factor, but it also has the social political factor within these warring factions within the USSR during the nuclear Holocaust. But also as well, just to talk about the film a little bit more, to get back onto track, sorry. Um, I do think the one thing the film gets wrong is that it, it's those loose ends. I keep on thinking about them. I'm sorry to, 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 to go back to where I started here, but I think this film could have had a bigger gut punch at the end. And it just doesn't, I think it just goes onto that. Uh, it's a really flat and slightly underwhelming finale for me. And I think, and I, I, speaking about it more, it's the one thing I can't really get out of my head. It's the fact that it ties up way too neatly to the point where I'm just sat there, like I'm just waiting for the, for the inevitable, go on, like just go for the stab in the back. Like obviously not literally in this film, not, I'm not spoiling anything like that. I just, I mean, like I want the gut punch. I want there to be this horrible twist where it leaves me like just feeling grim. And I think say what you will about life and, and it, it does an interesting job again, the science fiction element, but that ending to that film is the best part of it because it's the one thing you're not expecting for that production to do. And yes, it, 
you can say this it can go one of two ways but i think that is not that's not the americanized deviation i thought it would go for and i'm glad it did go for that horrible gut punch of like oh shit here we go and i think to its to that extent i think the cloverfield movies have done that and here i think it needed that extra sort of i don't know i just i just felt like it needed that that extra sort of gut punch where maybe and not to spoil i don't want to spoil anything but i'm going to anyway the spoil warning but I was hoping that at the end, the, the the second pilot would wake up in the hospital bed. I was just waiting for like that, oh shit, like here we go. Like there's actually something more to it. And I, I don't want that sequel baiting um, mentality. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I just wanted them to, to, to be like, it's not all roses. If this happened in real life, it would not have, well, it would have done, but the, the, the Tatiana character by Oskana Akinashina, that wouldn't have happened they wouldn't be tied up in such a way where everyone was smiling at the end. It would be like, fuck, like the government is up to horrible things. This could get out of hand at any moment. And in the film it does, don't get me wrong. But I was just waiting for that second pilot to wake up with the black eyes and know, right. He like, that is, that leaves you like with this unnerving, eerie sort of mentality of like, Oh no, this is horrible. But overall, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised of this Abramenko's debut. And to get into Tribeca, for a director debut, is that, I generally think that's that's a that's a hell of a hell of an achievement. It's going to be a weird comparison, and it's a little bit different. But I felt very similar to a previous film we talked about on the podcast called Proxima, where it felt like it was waiting for like there should have been some more like like you mentioned a gut punch just to elevate it to the next level. And I do feel similar in this film how it feels like there needs to be one lasting like point to the film, and there just isn't. Um, but going back to the conversation on streaming services, I know you moved on, but I, I want to just quickly mention, I think what is like the question, what is a streaming service pl- like title is becoming way overblown in a conversation. I think it's just an average release now. Like, I don't think there's a certain type of film that goes there. And I think this there's, I'm sorry to trigger everyone who thinks, you know, theaters are dying. But I think everyone who worships a theatrical release forgets like, yes, you have all these big films that get shown on that platform, but you also get Doolittle. You also get these absolutely shit movies. Like being a film that goes to theaters does not mean you're a good movie. Chances are majority are terrible. Um, So like, yes, I think it says something like if uh, a studio commits to a theatrical release and doesn't release on VOD or doesn't release on streaming services. But with how things are going, this is just an average, another form of a release. So I think the conversation needs to evolve you know, rather quickly, you know, sooner than later on no longer, hey, what is like the issue with the film? Why is this going to streaming services? Why isn't this going to be a success in theaters? And just instead look at it as another form of release. To round out Coppercast, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Rory, let's start with you. Uh, So I haven't been on the podcast for a while, so I had a chance to watch, I probably watched like 10, 15 films since I was last on. The first one that I recommend is The Rules of Attraction. Uh, which is directed by Roger Avery, I believe. And it's uh, adapted from a book by Brett Easton Ellis. And we were talking about how Spree is a film full of horrible people. Well, you know, just wait until you see this. Um, James Van Der Beek starring kind of college movie. I think at the time it was advertised as a college movie along the lines of kind of American Pie or Animal House or something like that. And, you know, you can definitely see why people believe that. I mean, it had Thomas Ian Nicholas in it, who was Kevin in American Pie but it's a very different, very dark interpretation of the college lifestyle. Um, 
that's got an awesome, I know we are talking about Needle Drops earlier, it's got an awesome soundtrack. Uh, it's James Van Der Beek. I always wrote him off as kind of like a trashy uh, rom-com actor, but he's awesome in this. He's really nasty and uh, really kind of volatile and he's a really great uh, antagonist. And there's also an actress in this called Sharon Sossamon, I think it is. I'm probably butchering that name, but she's fantastic in this. And I've seen her, this is the first thing I've seen her in. And I think she really deserves more roles. I mean, I'm probably a bit late to the party. This film came out 16 years ago, but she was great. So The Rules of Attraction is my first pick. And also something I found out after, if you're an American Psycho fan, this film is technically related to that because the lead character in Rules of Attraction is called Sean Bateman. And halfway through the film, he calls his brother Patrick. So there you go. There's the link, which I didn't even clock at the time. But uh, if you're an American Psycho fan, which I know a lot of people are, check it out. Um, and my second recommendation, I've been getting a lot into uh, Brat Pack movies recently. Uh, St. Elmo's Fires is a, is a big favourite of mine. And I was looking into more films like this that have actually had critical acclaim because most of them haven't. Uh, although I am planning on delving into some of the crappier ones as well. Uh, Oxford Blues with Rob Lowe is next on my list, which I think is a solid kind of three on IMDb as we speak. But, you know, that's not everything, so that's fine. But uh, my recommendation is About Last Night with Rob Lowe and Demi Moore which is, um, it's kind of a little bit like The Big Chill, which I talked about a few weeks ago, um, about kind of post-college uh, people living in the city in this place, Chicago. And it's kind of a rom-com with uh, Rob Lowe and Demi Moore. But it's interesting, the fact that it's not a comedy at all, really. It's got Jim Belushi in it. He does provide some kind of sleazeball moments, which are quite funny, and he does do quite well. Um, but it's more of a kind of relationship drama, more along the, it's more, it's kind of like a boyfriend, girlfriend version of marriage story. Obviously it's not quite that level and it is very much its own thing and very, very much a project of the eighties with one of the most eighties soundtracks you'll ever hear in your life. But um, it's a really interesting film. It's, it's directed, it's, I can't remember who directed it, but it's written by, um, oh yeah, so it's directed by Edward Zwick who directed The Last Samurai and Glory, I think he did and uh, things like that. And it's written by David Mamet, uh, the, the playwright. So it's a really interesting mashup of kind of Brat Pack mixed with prestige theater playwright mixed with a uh, hugely successful Hollywood kind of blockbuster director. So um, if that sounds interesting, you check that out as well. But those are my two recommendations for this week. Carson, what, what have you been recommending us for this week? Continuing our conversation of um, movie studios joining up with streaming services, Apple TV Plus released a documentary this week called Boy State. Um, it sounds nightmarish, but trust me, it's entertaining. It's 1,100 teenage boys in Texas get together to run an election. Uh, they're randomly assigned two separate political parties. They have to assign uh, party leaders and then eventually working up to electing someone as governor. Um, it is a really entertaining documentary simply because the larger-than-life personalities at display, um, very entertaining characters, but also a really like depressing and scary look at politics and the political mindset within young individuals. Um, being from Texas, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that there's a lot of conservative takes here. Um, and even those who don't agree with the conservative takes, and they just accept that they have to lie and fight for these really horrendous things. I mean, at least my moral standpoint, which I mean, I'm fine saying I disagree with you if you think like abortion shouldn't be legal, for example. Um, and just this really weird look at, you, it's weird and unique look at politics and how politics operate within America 
that is very, very scary, uh, but very entertaining at the same time and definitely worth the watch. 2020 continues to be an absolutely legendary year for documentaries. There are so, so many just incredible documentaries this year. I um, mean, this is just the next one on a very long list. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clevercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Carson, do you want to go first? Sure, you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews or on Letterboxd, just Carson Tamar. And Rory, yourself? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Rosa227. You can find all my rambling and cynical takes on uh, both Twitter and Letterboxd with the username at JadLukeSharp. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperlt.co.uk. And find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. You can also find our Ko-fi links to support our team over at ko-fi.co.uk forward slash ClapperLTD. And uh, we're all thankful for all the donations given. Thank you very much. Can make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.